where Dave and I plan this year's company holidays. Let's go through the list. Easter, too religious. St. Patrick's Day? Too white. Mother's Day? Way too cisgendered. All of your usual holidays have been canceled this year. But we still have Karl Marx's birthday! Ha <laughs> Need a real reason to party? Find a new job at redballoon.work. Politicians are like new cars. They depreciate the minute you drive, you drive them off the lot and they don't ever gain in value. They always depreciate in value, right? No one gets more principled the longer they're in Washington, D.C. It is District 1. It, the place is designed to, to put you in a Kobayashi Maru every day. That, that's, that's its point. Hey, everybody. It's Michael Thiessen, and welcome to the Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. Today, I am joined by a man who is a pioneer in podcasting before us and a real influencer that many of us listen to, and that is Mr. Steve Dace. Thanks for coming on, Steve. It's great to have you here. You bet, Michael. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate it. So, Steve, I know that this might be offensive, but I kind of want to start to talk to you about another person because I know you're <laughs> connected to Ted Cruz, and I just got finished reading his book, One Vote Away, and um, whether it is in Texas or in the broader USA or way up in Canada, uh, the conservatism that's going around uh, Ted Cruz, the Daily Wire, and all of that, including your podcast, is really growing and it's really helpful to us. So I thought we'd maybe start our discussion around what it was like working on his campaign and working with Ted Cruz. Sure. I don't want to ramble, so ask me a specific question and we'll go from there. Okay, how long did you work with Ted and what drew you into his campaign? So when you live in the first in the nation caucus state of Iowa, and this is where the, the first ballots in every presidential election cycle are cast, is here in my home state, the, the presidential campaign begins for you a year, a year and a half in advance of that calendar year. Um, people already begin to make overtures. People already begin to make phone calls um, and, and a feeling out process. Um, because in my case, when I, when I, before I, I went national, I worked at uh, the, the big 50,000 watt blowtorch radio station in Iowa. And I had the most prominent local media platform in the entire state. And that gave me access to relationships with all forms of activists and everything else, which you need in a caucus, much more than a, in a primary. And so leading into the 2016 cycle, I had numerous candidates come to me. Uh, I mean, one of the first was actually Donald Trump. Uh, and he ended up making hires that, of people that I actually recommended to run his Iowa campaign. And people, you know, originally I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm here vetting the candidates. I'm not here to take any particular position, at least not yet. Eventually I will, but not yet. I'm going to go through a vetting process. And so I had several candidates that came to me and said, hey, would, would you give me, uh, you know, some names of people to talk to, activists I should hear from and things of that nature. And I was always happy to do it. No promises, you know, but, you know, as long as they're willing to come and hear you out, you can make your own pitch. And one of them that I, I, I did it for was Ted Cruz. And I had I had actually gotten to know uh, some people, uh, some of the high ranking members of his original staff. Um, I mean, a couple of them are two of my best pals, Jason Johnson, who I 
directly reported to on the Cruz campaign. Uh, and co he's now Congressman Chip Roy, who was uh, uh, Ted's chief of staff. They actually reached out to me. I was in D.C. in 2014 promoting uh, my book, Rules for Patriots, How Conservatives Can Win Again. And they actually reached out to me. And that's actually where I got the idea for the book, The Nefarious Plot, that we are about to finish the movie version of, was on this trip. But uh, they, they reached out to me and said, hey, we want to get the lay of the land and, and see if it's even realistic that we should run for president. And uh, I had not even met Ted yet, but my advice to them, we had dinner at, uh, I think, like some kind of an Irish pub or something in D.C., I want to say. And I, my advice to them was that I think your candidate is the new Rick Santorum, meaning that in the 90s, Rick Santorum was the young um, firebrand conservative that all the American conservatives loved and wanted to keynote speak all their banquets and things of that nature. And then, you know, it's the great line from The Dark Knight, you either die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. He had been, he probably stayed in the Senate once, one term too many. And so the party decided to put him in leadership. And that's always when they co-opt you. And then he starts making compromises and stuff that really offended people. And he never kind of lived those down, you know, and, and, he, and he probably didn't, would, wouldn't have won Iowa if literally every other conservative candidate had not had a meltdown in the 2012 cycle. So he won basically by default. And so my advice to them was, you know, if you think your guy's presidential material, run him now. Because politicians are like new cars. They depreciate the minute you drive, you drive them off the lot, and they don't ever gain in value. They always depreciate in value, right? No one gets more principled the longer they're in Washington, D.C. It is District 1. It, the place is designed to, to put you in a Kobayashi Maru every day. That, that's, that's its point, right? And so go ahead. I was going to say that's a really profound thought. I don't think people really understand the, the pressure there. That you know you yeah. you you have your most ideal candidate before they're tempted all yeah. day long to be corrupted. Yeah. yeah, go for it. And that's what that's all they want to do. Washington D.C. wants to prove that no one can be good, no one can rise above. Everyone has to assimilate. Everyone has to succumb. That's the Kobayashi Maru game. There, they they long to put you in impossible scenarios. So my advice to them was, I don't know how good of a candidate it'll be, but you should run now. And. Uh, I was actually very close in the summer of 2015. I, by now, I had met Ted a few times, but I was very close to, to signing up with Trump. Uh, and uh, he gave a now ill-fated appearance at uh, the family leader event here in Iowa, where he said, I've, I've never asked God for forgiveness because I've never done anything wrong. And, and I like, uh, I'm not a huge John McCain fan, but I'm not a fan of saying I like you know, soldiers who weren't captured. That's probably not kosher, right? And I just thought at the time, I can't sign on to this. I just can't do it, you know? And so I kind of re rebooted my entire process of vetting, my wife and I did. And we ended up making the decision in um, uh, late July of 2015, uh, or early August, somewhere in there, of going with the cruise campaign. And then I was, uh, I was brought on uh, as a senior strategist. I helped them organize and hire for their Iowa caucus campaign. Um, they, they hired basically the people I told them to hire sight unseen and the, the guy they hired to run the campaign. Uh, one of my best friends, Brian English, did an incredible job, um, created maybe the greatest conservative organization for any campaign that's ever existed in Iowa. And they got the most votes in any Iowa caucus of all time. Uh, and, um, and, and, and so from there, I stayed on the campaign because of that success in Iowa. And I was uh, I was a part of it until the last day, which was in early May of 2016. So the, the reason why we started 
off our conversation around Ted Cruz's because uh, I just finished his book One Vote Away and uh, I found the advice very simple and very helpful about you know appointments to the Supreme Court and that is that presidents and senators need to examine the pattern uh, uh, of someone before they nominate and confirm them to the court. Uh, it got me thinking of biblical eldership. You know, you, you don't put somebody into the eldership of a church without them being tested and uh, being able to mm-hmm. withstand the crucible, so to speak, and 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 gain experience, not to be young in their face, so not 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 to be a young politician. Um, so when you've written a book about you know how we can win again, it seems that there is like the in the broader culture, there seems to be the opposite type of advice that um, Cruz put in this book. The opposite type of advice is put somebody in there who's palatable, you know, put someone in there who's not going to rock the boat. You know, this is why we get appointments to the Supreme Court. This is why we get uh, uh, representatives put in place that are, you know, squishes or rhinos or whatever you want, whatever term you want to give them. In, I, I'm interested to hear your advice. You know, uh, Cruz says, you know, see their, examine them and examine their pattern before you appoint them. Um, d- when you wrote the book, uh, How to Win Again, d- are you giving similar types of advice in your book or are, are, you, are, you, are you swaying from that? What, what's some advice that you give in your book? So I think there's two different, I don't want to, to me, there's experience and then there's effectiveness. Okay, I mean, not not uh, not all experience is good. And so the reason why I advised um, JJ and Chip to go back and tell Ted, if you want to run, do it now is 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 because the longer you're there. I mean, there's a story in Breitbart today, the time you and I are taping this. There's a story in Breitbart today about how they're very disappointed about Cruz caving to Amy Klobuchar, a Democratic senator about something involving, um, you know, media access and protection. And I'm just telling you, I don't, that kind of story in a place like Breitbart would not have been written about Ted Cruz in 2014 or 2015. This just goes to show you the longer you're there, the more impossible situations you are put in, right? You know, one of my favorite movies is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And, um, and, 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 you know, James Kirk, the only Starfleet cadet that ever beat the Kobayashi Maru. How did he beat it? He broke into to, to the uh, academy the night before, reprogrammed the simulation so you could actually win. That's how you cheated. All right, that's what he did. Is he cheated because he didn't want to believe in a no-win scenario. And so I, I wanted I wanted them to run him now, and then it, then because you're, the, the the nature of the campaign, Michael, will determine will expose for us whether you're effective or not. Right? This isn't. This isn't going to be a a scripted, orchestrated judicial nomination process. This is going to be clumsy, daily, grinding, 12, 14-hour days, everybody running cameras on their phones all the time. I wasn't worried about whether he was good enough at at the job or not because I knew the process would reveal that. I just thought in terms of a political stock, you depreciate in value as a politician. I mean, the more you appreciate in value to Washington, D.C., the more you depreciate in value to the people of everywhere else in the country. Right. Um, and and when I, but to the book, you know, Rules for Patriots, that was actually based on my Ten Commandments of Political Warfare. 
Um, things like um, never comp, never sacrifice the moral high ground. Um, never, never go against your base unless they are morally wrong. Never attack what you're not willing to kill because you'll get no credit for showing restraint later on. Those were basically my answer for conservatives in response to Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. Okay. So how, how do we navigate forward? Um, I know that this is a broad question, but how do we navigate forward against that narrative where all, all, always pick the person who uh, is going to be more palatable to the broader group you know there just always seems to be this appeal to you know don't so like i i love that i love that expression you know don't attack something you're not willing to kill it seems that there's so many things that need to be killed but then you have the age-old issue where people say well wait we don't want someone who everybody can point to them having blood on their hands or we don't want to point to someone who's overly um uh, overly aggressive. And so how, how do we move forward? How do conservatives move forward? You know, I, I encourage people just to, you know, take the Solomon route and, 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 and double down, you know, when the press says, did you say that? You said, of course I said that. And what, how, how could you misunderstood? Let me say it clearer. Right. Um, yeah. But that doesn't seem to be the norm. It seems that people want to promote people who are, are, are far more um, willing to, to, to bend and, 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 and be shaped by the culture. We have a system here in the U.S. where we have, uh, right now I would describe it as one political party that is literally demonic, and the other political party are basically Jesuit priests, all right? So they know, they know all the, if you get the analogy, they know all the God language, but they're just heretics, all right? They're, they're not real, they don't really believe in this stuff, okay? Um, and, and, and that's what we call controlled opposition, a lot of the a lot of the conversation about electability is really what, what the system really means is we don't want this person can't get elected because if they do, they won't go along with the system. That's that's almost always what electability means. Right. I mean, there are some things that are pretty obvious. You can't talk. Right. Um, you've been abusive to a spouse or a child. Um, you're a terrible human being. Right. Those things are pretty obvious. OK. Um, and, and no, I'm not talking about this stuff like Roy Moore about five years ago, where the guy was so straight laced, he didn't own a car and literally rode to work on a horse. And then suddenly we, are, we were told after many, many years that he that he trolled the malls of rural Alabama uh, for prepubescent lovers. OK, right before he's about to become a U.S. senator, after he's run for six other elections before this and these allegations never came out. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. Like it's a proven, confirmed, demonstrated thing. You're a terrible person, right? Beyond that, and those are very limited exceptions. Most people that are guilty of those things don't often run because they are fearful that those things will get exposed and come out, okay? So most of the time, and I would say most would define like 85, 90% of the time when they tell you someone is not electable, what they really mean is this person can't get elected because they won't bow. They won't kneel before Zod. They won't bow the knee to, to the chocolate bunny. That's That's almost always what they mean. OK. Um, and, and, and I that's what that's why Ron DeSantis is such an important figure in American domestic politics. Because you could say that maybe it's an outlier. Trump got lucky, uh, you know, in, in, in America, it's typically difficult for a party 
to win three terms in a row. There's often fatigue when the same guy wins two terms and then the successor runs. It's That's hard to do. It doesn't happen often in America. Not to mention Hillary Clinton's negatives were negative. Her favorables, unfavorables are almost as high as Trump's. Not a likable, not an inspirational figure. And you could say, hey, dude rolled the dice. He won the four decisive states by 78,000 combined votes and just got lucky and was an outlier. And that's how he got away with all these incendiary statements and in-your-face remarks, and no one could duplicate it again. Ah, you could have said that before the governor of Florida. Because Florida is the third largest state in the United States. There's over 21 million people there. It's also been the most expensive and contested swing state in American politics for half a century. All right. Over the last 40 years, the average margin of victory prior to 2020, when Trump won the state by four and a half points, which was like a rout, prior to 2020, the average margin of victory in Florida presidential elections for the previous 40 years of presidential elections was 2.5 points. All right. So it was the most expensive swing state in the union. And what's happened is Ron DeSantis has used, has used well, with more polish, he's, a, he's an Ivy League guy, but a lot of the same sort of incendiary language and tactics and ploys and in-your-face stuff, like I'm going to drop illegals off on Martha's Vineyard and stuff like that, right? He's done a lot of the same stuff Trump did, but he's also governed very effectively. And this goes back to, you know, to, uh, to, to the question you asked me about Cruz a moment ago, right? I wasn't worried about his effectiveness because that would come out in the campaign. Can you do the job, right? And I think what we as conservatives need to look at is, is we have to, when, if the other side is, is lies about what's electable, we have to look at who, who's doable, like who could do the job. Not just, you know, there's a lot of people that know more about stuff than Michael, Th Michael Thiessen does. But can they sit here and host a podcast that draws an audience and engages an audience? Meaning, can they take that knowledge and put it into the form that it needs to for this job to be successful, right? That's the thing. Can you do the job of politician? Can you govern? It's, voc it's a vocation like anything else. It's not just ideological. It's practical. Can you run a massive corporation called the government of Florida as its chief executive officer? Can you do that? He has done it masterfully. I mean, economically, the state's a wonder. The state was the bastion of freedom during COVID in America, one of them. And what's happened is, he, that there's now been a swing of over 300,000 people that were registered as Democrats that are now registered as Republicans in the state. And he is cruising to reelection and against a former governor of Florida to boot. OK, and so what DeSantis has shown us that Trump showed us that it was possible to get elected doing this. All right. To do the stuff that guys like you and I pontificate about on our shows, but we don't, but it's theoretical. We assume this talking to people and looking at the culture. We assume that people want a certain Bullworth quality. They're tired of BS. They want more Bullworth, right? We're, we assume this, but we don't have a, we don't have a, we don't have a proof of concept. We have a theory, but we don't have a proof of concept. Trump established the proof of concept for I can get elected being in your face. Okay, I can do it. What DeSantis is showing is. I can get reelected if I can still govern doing that, meaning that the minute Trump got elected, his popularity began to wane. And his governing was kind of all over the place. He was very high, high, very low lows. Some of the best decisions we've ever seen during COVID, some of the worst decisions we've ever seen. All right. And this high variance created a lot of volatility with his support, which what DeSantis has shown is I can take Trump's tactics and Trump's way of doing things. And, and, and combine them with a polished and effective way and a button-down way to govern. You don't, even, you, don't, you don't ever see DeSantis and his people on different messages. You don't ever see it. 
I mean, they're in lockstep. They're completely disciplined, right? And so what DeSantis is now providing us is proof of con- con- concept that Trump was not a fluke and that if you can actually follow his lead but govern even more effectively, there is a massive audience for it, even in some of the most politically divided places in America. Ron DeSantis is going to win, it looks like right now, Miami-Dade County in the gubernatorial election. For those of you that have long memory, that was one of the key counties of hanging chads during the Florida recount, all right? And Ron DeSantis is poised to win that county this year. And he didn't do it by moderating on any issue or moving to the left on any issue. He has taken some of the most aggressive postures and positions and confrontational postures and positions on issues we have ever seen from a mainstream American politician. Steve, I have two questions to follow up with that. And um, I'm, I'm so thankful for the way that you're articulating the proof of concept idea. Uh, the first question is this. It goes back to something you said about belief. So, of course, you and I are we're here, we're we're podcasting, we're trying to we're, we're trying to share with people a, a evangelical, reformed, biblical, conservative worldview. We're 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 trying to attack you know uh, falsehoods. We're trying to attack you know cancel culture, all of these types of things, kind of in and in an instructional way and an engaging way. But that's because we really believe what we're saying. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I just finished a podcast with a with a with a guy who had come to Christ out of uh, out of a homosexual lifestyle, and the reason why he's on my show is because we're really talking about Christ being able to change uh, your life, and and Christ being able mm-hmm. to direct and lead even your politics. Mm-hmm. Is the difference between DeSantis' uh, his consistency and Trump's consistency? Is it a matter of worldview? Because I know that yes. Absolutely, 10,000% it is. And there's an example of that just today, all right? So there was a story yesterday that Trump was ticked off that Ron DeSantis had basically taken his idea of shipping illegals to blue, to blue states and cities and had stolen it from him. Now, notice that Trump wasn't complaining when Greg Abbott actually did that first a couple of months ago, but Greg Abbott's not the threat to Trump that, that Ron DeSantis is politically. Okay. So, so Trump is basically saying, Hey, Ron DeSantis is taking credit for my idea. The next day, which is today, Jared Kushner is on Fox news. Now, Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, second most powerful person in the Trump white house who basically ran the political side of the Trump white house. You didn't get to speak at CPAC. You didn't do anything in the conservative movement without Jared Kushner's uh, express written permission. All right. For the four years Trump was president. Okay, Jared Kushner's on Fox News today condemning Ron DeSantis for uh, because he thinks this is treating human beings as if they're political cops. So understand what's going on here. Trump is claiming that DeSantis stole his idea from him. At the same time, the guy that Trump picked to be the second most powerful man in America is condemning the idea as as inhumane. That is a perfect portrait of what life was like in the ecosystem within the Trump White House. Uh, if you want to be depressed, go read Scott Atlas's book about what it, what, it, what it was like once he got on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And he has, doesn't have a lot of good things to say about Jared Kushner. Okay, and, and this is the difference. Trump's worldview is art of the deal. He's a godless man. I mean, I think, I think he's a patriot. I think he loves America. I think he sees that the things the country was founded on helped him take the million dollars that his old man gave him as a graduation from Wharton School of Business and parlay that into a worldwide fortune that there was no other place on earth that he could have done that. 
And I think he's very grateful to this nation for that. I think he loves this country and its institutions and traditions and, and earnestly wants to preserve them. But in the end, no man rises above, no man, as I like to say on my show, rises above their own worldview. Or as the, as the, as, you know, as the scriptures say, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay. You are what you believe in the end. And what tr this is why Trump's foreign policy was very good, because he correctly deduced that a lot of a lot of Islamic leaders really weren't true believers, uh, that they that, that that they essentially could be invited in to the system and, and, and make deals with Israel and not be shunned from the world. Do you do you really want do you do you want to be poor because of the Palestinians that your country doesn't want either? Do you really want to be poor Saudi Arabia because of the Iranians that you don't like either? And they're not even real Arabs. See, he figured out that they wanted in on the deal. These are all very rich oil baron families. Very few of them are truly committed to Wahhabism and terrorism. And he figured out that we could cut a deal with them. Right. And it worked. And it was tremendous foreign policy success that he that he had. But every now and then, though, you come up against, Michael, an evil. It's like the great. Um, it's the great rant Donald Pleasance has in the first Halloween movie about Michael Myers cannot be killed, cannot be stopped, cannot be contained, right? There, there's, there, there's no negotiating. Sometimes there's an evil that, or as Michael Caine says, as Alfred in The Dark Knight, some men just want to watch the world burn. Sometimes there is an evil that cannot be negotiated with. It must only be cast out. It must only be confronted and defeated. And I just think that doesn't exist in the worldview of a guy with, you know, multiple wives and and brags about bankruptcies because he th that was a great, you know, tactic of getting out from a bad business deal. Um, I, I, I just think that that level of um, uh, of just, uh, you know, technocratic um, utilitarianism works when you're dealing with other technocratic utilitarians that speak your language. But when the real evil comes up, not the one pretending to be evil for rhetorical flourish, but the real stuff. And I think that's why he failed during COVID. I think his presidency panicked and said, yeah, yeah, find me the experts. And I don't want to kill all these people. They'll tell me what to do. Did no vetting, no questions, no second opinions. OK, um, and I think that's the difference between him and DeSantis is the worldview. There is more spiritually and, and philosophically. There's a broader understanding of the world that Ron DeSantis has that Donald Trump does not. Donald Trump is, if I could use an analogy, Donald Trump is, is a great closing pitcher in Major League Baseball, right? I've got my signature fastball, my signature slider sinker. I come in, I get my three outs. I close the game up. We're done here. I'm Mariano Rivera. You can't be a starting pitcher that way, though, Michael, because the second or third time through the order, everybody's like, well, what, what else you got here? Yeah, you're Ron throwing down and you're pitch. throwing the same pitch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Ron and after a while, you can throw it 110 miles an hour. Sooner or later, I'm a major league player. I'm going to catch up to him. Right. Ron DeSantis is a starting pitcher that there's a five pitch repertoire there. And he can he can he can he know he's not a thrower. He's a pitcher. Trump is a thrower, not a pitcher. Now, I'll say this, though, without Donald Trump, there's no way Ron DeSantis is governor today. So if you recognize, as I do, that, that Ron DeSantis is a generational level of talent politically and that you are anxious to see what that could do with even more of a platform like the White House. Yeah. Understand that without the ground that Donald Trump tilled here and without endorsing Ron DeSantis in that primary, 
there's no way we even know what a Ron DeSantis is today. So at least the second question, at least the second question about Trump, because, you know, so many Christians are divided about Trump. And I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that what we what we then saw during covid was such a different experience than so many other things. And it seemed or it seems that Trump really believes in conservatism. And so when we're talking about the worldview issues, are we dealing with like a fiscal conservative that's limited to those things? And then I think it's I think it's more I think it's more fundamental than that. I think I think it's. I love horror movies, uh, particularly of the spiritual variety. And I've watched them. My grandmother got me into them when I was a pagan kid growing up. And then after I became a Christian, I, I kept up for the most part with the ones that dealt with spiritual themes. Because I think you can tell a lot about a culture, Michael, by what it's afraid of. Okay? And one of the most powerful and, and popular American horror films of this century, um, it's, it's was probably the biggest found footage movie since Blair Witch Project. It was called Paranormal Activity. And in this film, this young couple moves into this apartment together and um, they start experiencing terrifying things. And they come to the conclusion that they are being um, that they're being demonically attacked. And so in this movie, they, they go get the professor of demonology at the university. They go online and Google how to confront demons and what to do. They contact her dad. Okay. I mean, they go to every place in the culture you could possibly go to to get an answer to such an enemy, except one place. Guess where they never go? <laughs> they never go to the church. They never go to, they never go to, to the, the, the word of God. Fact, the church, yeah, the church isn't, de- isn't denigrated in the film. It's like, it's like this is a different reality where we don't exist. We're not even there. All right. Yeah. And so by the end of that, I mean, they're working hard. They're trying hard. They earnestly want to resist this demonic entity. They, they earnestly want to get it out of their home. They recognize it as evil. But the tool and the place that would provide the tools to do the job is nowhere on their radar. That's not in their worldview. It's not in the worldview of the makers of the movie. It's not in the worldview of the characters they made. And so eventually they get swallowed up by it at the end of the film. OK, that's what I'm talking about here. You're asking a guy who believes that he's never done anything wrong. So there's no reason to ask God for forgiveness. You're asking him to humble himself for a source of wisdom and power beyond himself. You ever been to Manhattan, Michael? I have just once in you my entire life. Yep. Okay. Then you, then you probably saw how much of that skyline bears the name of Trump on it. Okay. Yep. This is a guy that whether it's his seed or whether it's his trademark brand, is putting the name and the DNA of Trump on, on everything he can ever get his hands on. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay? There is no world for him of, of, of power or wisdom or authority. Look at the people that are on his Christian spiritual council. A lot of them, frankly, are like heretics, like Paula White, you know, prosperity gospel, pimps, pimps and pimpresses, right? There's very few people that say, repent and be baptized, Right. You know what I'm saying? There's no king but Jesus, right? Okay. I think everybody was hoping that that. So, sorry, go ahead. I, I, you finish up. I was I was I, I, I was thinking everyone was hoping that Mike Pence would be that for him. Yeah, but the but having known of Mike, no Mike Pence for years, I knew that wasn't going to work that way because he's a coward. Mike Pence is what inhabits much of America's pulpits: sweater vests, pleated khakis. They're really nice guys. They don't lust after the chick in the yoga pants at the gym. They're just a lot. 
they're more moral and better people than us. But but, but when the when it goes down, when the fight starts, they're nowhere to be found. He's been a he's been a political coward for years. So I I'm not surprised that he lacked the temerity that Donald Trump would have been greatly benefited if Mike Pence had been been that Nathan character you're talking about. He was not. He was a groveler. And then and then in the end, when Trump actually needed his help, then you saw him quit and surrender and hide behind, you know, semicolons of the Constitution. No one enforces or cares about anymore. That's that's that is Mike Pence is the American evangelical church incarnate. It's it's it is personal piety, but no threat in a fight whatsoever. None. Okay, none. Well. That explains a lot because Pence was given the Pence was given the COVID response uh, portfolio, was he not? Yeah. Yes, yeah. he was. He brought Debbie Burks in. Yeah, he was. Now, and now, that only is an excuse for so long because, as you read in Atlas's book, he went around Pence and went directly to Trump and brought people like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and others to him that could have given Trump the data and information he needed to get out from underneath this nexus of, of betrayal and deceit but again he his worldview would not allow him to operate on something unseen something not tan something untangible he's a materialist you you cannot the, the holy spirit's not active there and so that's the difference and i mean hey man if, if i if i want to hire an agent and that's basically what trump was as a president for us he was our agent OK, represented our interests in, in, in a negotiation. And, he, and, and when he was in that role, Michael, he was I didn't think he was going to be a good president at all. When he was in that role, he was a masterful president when he was in that role. OK, and I'll admit it. He was masterful when we needed him to be, though, not our agent, but our general, our leader. That's when the worldview falls apart because there was there's no negotiating with the with 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 Ralph Barrick. There's no negotiating with Eco Alliance, Nico Health Alliance. There's no negotiating with 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 um, six boosters a year. There's no negotiating with that. That has to be stopped. That has to be stood up to. That has to be defeated. And and he just doesn't have that level of of moral clarity in his worldview to do that. This episode is brought to you by Rocklink Investment Partners. The team at Rocklink, as we all know them and love them, does not support a woke Marxist WEF-friendly cancel culture worldview. And they've created the Kokomo Fund. In light of bank accounts being seized and frozen during the Emergencies Act, or its former truer name, the War Measures Act, Rocklink can help you move your investments overseas based on in the Cayman Islands, the world's number one offshore market for investment funds. Give the freedom lovers at Rocklink a call, as many of our staff have, at 905-631-5462, or send them an email at info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink with a C dot com. You know, one of the one of the points that where this was clarified for me was running for re-election I thought, you know, if if Trump would, uh, you know, so many women didn't like Trump. And of course, because of his womanizing and, and the way that he spoke about women and all these types of things. And I thought to myself so many times, I remember being in a hotel room. We were a whole bunch of friends were uh, were together and uh, we, we were we were watching um, 
uh, we were rep- watch, watching the, the Republican uh, conference and, and Trump's speech. And I said, you know, if he would just right now apologize, you know, yeah, show any level of empathy or humility just one time, just yeah. in, in this one moment right here, if he would humble himself and say, look, I, I want to be a faithful husband and, and, and I'm sorry for that tape and I'm sorry for this. And, you know, yeah, my other marriages fell. Just one moment to say, I sincerely love the first lady and I want to be faithful to her. And I understand how you women feel towards my track record. Just one honest apology. I don't think uh, – I I actually think he would have won it hands down. He would have won so many people over. But that's what – that was a clarifying moment for me. When 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 he saw when he had that opportunity and there there was just one not one moment of repentance for anything. Well, you saw that you still see it with COVID. My lockdown was lockdowns are terrible, but my lockdown was great and saved lives. No, it didn't save any lives. It killed a lot of people that are that are dying on the back end now with cancer diagnosis that they didn't get and things of that nature. Right. My jab was great. Everybody should take it. No, it's a poisonous piece of garbage. And you got played, bro. Completely. Pro- you got completely played on that. And they use they use that gene poisonous gene juice as a platform by which to try to get the greatest invasion, coercive invasion of bodily autonomy since we ended the slave trade in the West. Okay, I mean, you're asking for something that, again, isn't there. It's just not there. That level of humility is not there. So then that leads us to then talking about your podcast, uh, your work in putting together this this movie that you want to tell us all about, uh, your worldview training, things uh, th- things that you know we're attempting to do here at Liberty Coalition Canada. Um, was a guy like was De- was DeSantis discipled, or did DeSantis come out of no one's? you know, field of vision and, and, and is just shining. And, and the reason why I ask that question is, is how do we raise a, a, a generation of leaders to, to have the tenacity? Like you said, you know, we wouldn't have DeSantis if we didn't have Trump. So have the tenacity of Trump, uh, but the worldview that they need to have in order to, as you say, become a general when a general's needed, not just an agent. I wish I knew the foolproof way. I can tell you some things that you definitely need to be wary of. Now, I've met Ron DeSantis once in my life in a hallway at CPAC like 10 years ago for 20 minutes when he was still in Congress, and I doubt he remembers. Okay, He endorsed my book, Fauci and Bargain, um, but that's because some of the people that he's hired on his team, like Kyle Lamb, who's, in the, who's the communications, one of the communications people, is a buddy of mine. I, I So I don't have like a personal relationship with him that I could speak with authority like I could on somebody like Cruz or frankly, even Trump. I spent a lot of time around Trump in 2014 and 2015. What I do know of of DeSantis though, is that, and this is a big benefit. I think you saw this with George W. Bush where the wife and the daughters were to the left of him. No man wants to, Michael, go fight the war all day long and then come home and fight it at home. He wants to, after he fights the war at home all day, he wants to come home and be a conquering hero. He doesn't want his wife and daughters to say, that was too harsh, or you should moderate your position on that. One advantage that I do know enough about the DeSantis inner workings to to talk about that he has is his wife, Casey. From everybody I know that knows him, the wife, Casey, might even be more radicalized than Ron. And that, that is key. 
because if it's one thing when Adrian says to Rocky, I don't want you to, I don't want you to fight anymore. I can't stand watching you get hit. Right. He gives it up. He's and like in Rocky too. And he's doing odd jobs instead. All right. Then finally, when he goes and visits Adrian in the hospital and she has a scare with the pregnancy and then she goes, there's just one more thing I want you to do. And he's like, what's that? One more thing I want you to do. And she says, win, win. Then the music kicks up, right? The training montage starts, okay? It's entirely different when the wife is supportive of the fight. Not that she's there by your side as your wife or even has personal ambitions, but that she is supportive of the fight itself. She's in on it. And I think that's a tremendous advantage because that's also your closest confidant and your most trusted friend if you've got a good marriage for any of us. And so when your most trusted friend, your closest confidant, also happens to have the same kind of balls you do and the same kind of um, uh, urine and vinegar that you've got for the enemy. Oh, that's you, you. I'm just telling you, as somebody who's vetted a lot of political candidates in my lifetime, that is not true very often. Most of the time, the wife is there to, to be dutiful and supportive um, or she's ambitious. Um, and so she's more interested on her husband being somebody than doing something. I mean, he couldn't go soft if he wanted to, from what I understand, because he'll, she can, he'll, he'll come up and I'd hear it from her. I think that's a tremendous thing. And, and one thing I would urge people to do is to always vet the spouse. Always vet the spouse. I'll say this. If, you're, if it's a female candidate and she's very strong, vet the spouse just the same. You need to know, is she a Deborah? She has a unique level of calling and, and courage. Or did she have to compensate for a weak man in her home and show she's been wearing the pants the entire time? Well, when the crap starts rolling downhill, is he going to support her or not? Or is he going to Mike Pence it and cower, right? Always vet the spouse. Always. How, how do we train them? Like, like I, when you're describing DeSantis, I, I, I had a moment of almost feeling overwhelmed in the, in the sense that he, he he's got to be so effective. Now, I, I know I'm asking big questions here, but particularly in Canada, you know, this is a major problem for conservatives. Uh, we don't, we have very, very here's, little here's, support for young we, conservative there, there politicians. Is, I don't want to interrupt. I don't interrupt. I'm sorry, pardon my interruption, but I think that you're asking an important question, but there's a question that you have to answer before we get to your question. Okay. And I had to learn this the hard way. I, I used to really, I used to vet really technically candidates on worldview and what and, and where their beliefs came from and what they thought truth was and what the law was and how they wrecked. And all those questions were very important. But I, I had to learn the hard way. I would get candidates that would survive my worldview grilling, Michael, and how I'd get them elected. And then they'd, then they'd completely betray me too many times and fall apart once they got in there. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And and I had to learn the hard way that, that human beings are not formulas. We're not algorithms. We're humans. We're complicated creatures. And you have to start with the first most basic question. In the kingdom of God, we are not judged by intentions. Liberals like to be judged by their intentions. Hey, I know I bankrupted your country, but I was trying to do good with the poor and the needy, so don't hold, don't, I'm not accountable. My intentions were good. Conservatives, a lot of times, like to be judged by their results. I made the trains run on time. It's okay that Trump did mean tweets uh, because the economy was good. Stuff like that. Okay. In the kingdom of God, you are not judged by intentions nor results. Damnable people. Mussolini made the trains run on time. 
communists have good intentions. You're not judged on any of those things. You're judged on motivation. Choose ye this day whom you will serve. Why do you call me Lord if you do not do what I say? Right? It is a test of motivation because one plants, another waters, and then God gives the increase. In the parable of the talents, when the master returns and the final servant says, well, I thought you were a wicked and vicious taskmaster. And so I, I, my, I was motivated by uh, the wrong, by, by a dreading fear, not a reverential fear. And so I took what you gave me and I buried it in the hopes that I wouldn't lose it. And instead of being, and, and, that's, and that's the harshest condemnation by the, by, the, by the master, because your motivations were not, were, 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 not, were not pure where your master was concerned. All right. Motivations matter more than anything else. Now, we're not God. Trying to perfectly glean other people's motivations, even our own, is not easy. But one thing that we can do, and this is one thing I would urge, if you can pass this test, then, the, then, then you can come up with systems of how to train candidates to be vocationally effective. All right? But this basic test has to be passed first. Are you running to do something? Or are you running to be somebody? Period. That's it right there. Is the t is, a lot of people is that test passed in your vetting process, or is that test yes. passed yes. by you observing prior to? Yes, both is the answer. Both. Okay. And now, I don't know. You know, I don't know what your recruitment you know system looks like in Canada, but a lot of times on the American right, people are, are lawyers, people that were in the state legislature and running for Congress is the next thing. It's like a bit of a hierarchy. Like you're working your way up through a minor league system to get to the major leagues. All right. Right. That encourages people to run to be somebody. I'm running to be a major leaguer. I'm running to be the starting first baseman for the Dodgers, a starting pitcher for the Astros. Okay. I'm running to be somebody, not I'm running to do something. Like, you know, Roy Hobbs, there goes Roy Hobbs, the best hitter that ever lived. I'm running to I'm running to win the Cy Young. I'm running, I'm doing this to win a World Series. We are looking for people that want to do things, not be somebody. If they want to be somebody, I promise you, it doesn't matter how many Bible verses they know, how, many, how much of Calvin's institutes they've read, including in Dutch and French. It won't matter. I promise you, once they get there, they will eventually be broken down because, as the proverb says, bad company corrupts good character. If they are running to be somebody, eventually that that ego and vanity will be turned against them and then he'll be turned against you. You have to find people that want to do things. I'm running to burn it down. I'm running I'm running to do something. I'm running to challenge the system. All right? That's the first thing and that's a heart question. What's your true real motivations, right? Why am I running? So if, if they come out of the business sector, look how they treated their employees. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look at look at the totality. Don't ever support a candidate whose family never comes around, especially the kids. Never do that. That's always a bad sign. Anytime the kids aren't interested at all in being involved in what the old man's involved in, never a good sign. Never a good sign. All right? Doesn't mean they have to be as politically engaged or active, but they got to think that, you know, my dad's doing this. It's pretty cool. You know, I want to show some support. You know what I'm saying? The, the, there are some things to, that gets into because nobody knows him better than his own wife and kids do. No, I mean, right? They saw him with his knickers down figuratively and literally. They're going to know whether he's for real as a human being or not. You're looking for 
the right motivation. And the right motivation is I'm going there to do something, not to be somebody. That's what you're looking for. That that's a great answer, and it's it's a great answer both in the fact that it's practical. Where you said, you know, it's a both and. We're looking, we're observing them ahead of time, and then we're we're observing them in the vetting process. Um, Same things in the pulpit, Michael. Am I? I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to save sinners. I'm going to be a pastor of a large church. I'm going to be on television. I'm going to be syndicated in radio, right? Am I going to be something or am I going to do something? Which is it? No, and and we've seen that and and like part of the part of the tragedy of the of the, of the church right now is you realize through observation of the last 2 years how many guys got into the ministry, got into the into the pulpit to be right. somebody. Even if it's just I'm going to be the husband to my wife and provide for my family, the, the end yep. result has been, I'm not here to change the world. I'm not here to take a stand. I'm not here to be, you know, Correct. I don't know how many times. Get, get, a group of pastors together, get a group of pastors together. The first question they always ask each other, how many did you have to church last week? Right? Or, much, or, much of Christian, much, much of church consulting is how, many, how do we get more people to come to church? Not what in the same hill do we do with them once they show up? Yeah. Right? Okay? Yeah. And, and so, yes. Another way of putting this is, am I missional? Am I, I there, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. I'm ambitious. All right. But my number one ambition is to fulfill the mission God gave me. And here's what I've noticed. The more on mission I am, the more God will grow our platform and will grow. I, I won't have to make any of the sellouts or compromises I worry about. The more on mission I am, the more God grows our platform. All right. Are you on mission or is your mission you? Okay, so I have to interject here because uh, I, I've come out of a, of a coaching ministry where I coach young pastors. And one of the things that happened during COVID was, of course, I was coaching them to stay open. I was coaching them yeah. to get into their scriptures and dig in. And uh, I was coaching them to, to look at reformational history. I was coaching them to look at, you know, the plague and, you know, like, look, look at what scripture says, Leviticus 13 about sanitization and, and, and illness and all these types of things. And this goes to the, the, the word missional. And I would receive so I, I, I would receive criticism and actually had to leave a large body of Canadian churches, uh, because they wanted you to be missional and you go, wait a minute, wait, what does the word missional mean? And it, it just revealed kind of what you're talking about of, of you know, am, am I, am I out for myself to be somebody or, or I, am I on mission? Cause when you would say, what does it look like to be missional? They would be giving you mm -hmm. Marxist answers. They'd be giving you pragmatic yes. answers, but they would not be right. giving you biblical so answers. It's just, they have a different mission than you do. That's why I didn't use the phrase missional from the outset, but started with, are you running to do something or be somebody, right? Yeah. Because I can co-opt the term missional. I'm on mission. You bet I am. It, well, yeah. Turns out your mission's a little bit different than the one I'm on. Yeah. And exactly. it, the, some of the groups, the, the broader groups like Acts 29 that would be using that language, that missional language, you look at, you look at their training for cultural engagement. You, you look at their... You look at what they say about what we ought to do for worldview training and and for um, uh, a, a public ministry, and it, it it's like it's like a group of toddlers 
leading a, another group of toddlers around. They, they've, they've got wait, no wait, concrete wait. answers for what it is like yeah. to engage with the gospel of Christ into the public sphere. So I'm really thankful for guys like yourself. Well, so I, I, I want to transition now to more talk about what you're doing because you've, you've actually, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be sharing this podcast out with lots of guys who are in the trenches politically right now, but it doesn't seem to me that you are uh, running campaigns anymore. It seems to me that you're really, you know, you know, trying to motivate thought. So can you share with us what you're doing? What I I realized, what I realized, Michael, after, after 10 years of evangelical political mobilization is I'm asking I'm asking our people to do that, which they are not ready, equipped or capable of doing. OK. And um, I've used this analogy on my show many times when when um, when Vince Lombardi took over the Green Bay Packers in the 1950s. This was one of the original proud NFL franchises and it had become the laughing stock of the NFL. And, and when he showed up for his first practice, there were men in that room. All right. Willie Brown. Um, for, uh, you know, Forrest Gregg, Bart Starr, men that would go on to become Hall of Famers. But no one knew this yet. They were nobodies right now. They were scrubs. And he realized he had to start all over again. All right. And so the first thing he did, he burned all the film from the previous season. He got up in front of the team and told them, I'm not watching any of the film from last year. Not watching any of it. We're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of your love of the game. And and start from the beginning and coach you back to where you need to be. All right. And so this was, this is what he did then after he said that he held up a football. So this is your first lesson, men, this is a football. That was it. Okay. And from, he started with first things. He went back to catechesis of football, to fundamentals. And what I realized is our people, because here's what would happen. Either they wouldn't get involved or they would. And I would, I would freak out because they, they'd sell out the minute they got in there. They'd they go for the seat at the table. They'd sell it to any Republican that lifted his skirt and showed him any leg at all, all right? And so they, I, I, they would too often not fight at all, or they'd get in there and become whores, frankly, for the Republican Party. So they're not prophetically effective. Can I jump in just with yeah. two Canadian examples with this? Because I want you to continue, but I just want to jump in with two Canadian examples. Bill C-4 passed. Actually, I'll just limit it to one example because I don't want to interrupt you. I want you to keep going. Bill C-4 passed in Canada, which was a conversion therapy bill. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this bill, but it is a a bill that uh, if you engage in what they call conversion therapy, which is affirming someone's uh, biological sex as their sex, um, that, that, you know, that's, that's a criminal, that's now in the criminal code. It's up to five years in jail. There's a hundred thousand dollar fine that goes with it. Every single Christian conservative in Canada allowed that bill to pass they voted yes for that bill yep yep okay so keep going because the caucus gets together you don't want to look like you don't want to make it harder on us to win we're still better than the other guys right you've sold out okay and so i realized i got to go back to the beginning here that um the these these our people have not been properly catechized they then and that they and then when they do get the right answers it's because they got them from fox news and not from the word of God. And that, that's not going to work either. I mean, getting the right answer from the, from the wrong source, uh, that won't work either because if you're catechized by Fox news, you live by the Fox news, you die by the Fox news. If you know what I'm saying. All right. Yeah, It's the so, same problem as Trump had, right? It's going to, you're going to be inconsistent yes. when the real worldview battle happened. Correct. 
And so I realized I've got to radicalize our people, which is another way of saying I've got to catechize our people. I, they need to be taught. And I'm certainly not someone that, you know, in an ideal age of the church, you know, the guy that does struggle not to look at every hot chick in the yoga pants at the gym, the guy that has plenty of his own weaknesses, the guy that nearly, nearly hit my wife and I nearly, our marriage nearly broke during COVID. We had years of unresolved issues that we swept under the rug while we were focused on being mom and dad. And now suddenly there's nowhere to go, no one to see, no distractions. And all these issues come to the surface. And I mean, we sat in this very same man cave where I'm talking to you right now. We sat here two and a half years ago during lockdowns and had a serious conversation about who would get the kids and the house and everything else, right? I'm not the person that in a healthy age of the church, God would call and say, all right, you're going to have to be the teacher of Israel, or to use an analogy, okay? Unfortunately, we're not in a healthy era. We're not. And a lot of the good guys that wear the pleated sweaters or the pleated khakis and the sweater vests and don't struggle with lust and, and those sorts of things and, and don't want to damn their enemies the way that I want to, the, a lot of those guys won't step up to the plate. Someone, therefore, must do the work, okay? And so... Into the breach, Samson goes. I know God would prefer there would be a better champion than Samson, all right? The guy with the rewards card at the Canaanite brothel. I'm sure he'd prefer a better champion than that. But if the, but all the Levite priests are nowhere to be found at the, at the temple of Dagon. No one else shows up for the fight. So then God will fight with the soldiers that he has, right? And so I realized I'm asking our people to do that, which they are not intellectually and convictionally equipped yet to do. And so I, I needed to radicalize, or, you know, we use a, a stained glass window term, catechize. I needed to catechize our people. And so that's what I had really spent since the 2016 election. That's been the prime directive of our show. Well, I'm really excited about it. Tell us about the movie. We are almost done with the movie based on my 2016 book, A Nefarious Plot, about a a demonic takeover of America. The movie is a prequel to the book. Uh, it will show you where this book that I wrote came from. Um, I watched the rough cut about uh, six weeks ago. And so that's no sound editing, no visual effects, no CGI, no color, just, just the, the final sequence of scenes and the best versions of those performances. So it's almost like watching a theatrical play without any effects or anything. It's the stripped down version. Sean Patrick Flannery's performance is nefarious. Brother, I'm just telling you, it was like watching Nicholson in The Shining kind of stuff. I mean, it blew me away. Uh, and I, and I, I went from, man, I hope I don't make a, another crappy, cheesy Christian movie to, holy crap, I think we might have made the most compelling Christian movie since The Passion. Or at least, at least the best movie we could have made for the three and a half million dollars that my company could afford to spend on it. I'll put it that way. And I think it will wreck people. I think it will be, um, it will be, uh, very impactful, and I cannot wait. It's going to be done here in a couple of weeks, and then we'll begin entertaining and, uh, and strategizing how we're going to do distribution with the film uh, more like more than likely at some point next year. That's really exciting, Steve. If there's any way that we can help, uh, even uh, you know, we got so many freedom churches that, that this fall, we're you know, we've had uh, a smaller project up in Canada being produced by one of the freedom pastors and one of the godly men who stood in the middle of the gap and uh, took all the arrows from the church and from culture. And uh, his name's Jacob Raum. And uh, we're, he just put together a documentary called the antichrist and his ruin or antichrist and his ruin from uh, of course, from that uh, John Bunyan book. 
And so it's mm-hmm. going to be a great documentary. And I'm so glad that you're doing that in, in your context. And of course, with, with, su- with su- such a much bigger budget, I know there's going to be a lot of churches who are going to want to show that movie on your behalf and, and, and get the word out. Uh, you know, Steve, I, I jumped right from your testimony about like, I'm not the guy God should or could call right now. I'm, I'm just a guy who's willing to go to the fight. I just want to say to you, I think we all feel like that. And I, I think the fight is still ahead of us. You know, I think the fight is, is still, uh, we still have a lot of ca- a cost in front of us to count. And I, I just want to thank you for your work. And it's, it, it's so deeply needed. I'm, I'm excited to go. I, I got to admit I, my, uh, when I get to interview everybody, I have such a reading list that I go away from because I am aware of one or two pieces of work that an author or a podcaster brings or a doctor or whatever brings. And then I leave with, okay, I got to read that book and I got to read his book over here. And I'm just really excited to, to, to dig into some of your works and uh, really anticipating this movie coming out. Um, for my listeners who you might be a new voice uh, to, uh, where are the best places for them to follow you? Uh, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, just look for Steve Dace, D-E-A-C-E there. Um, you can follow me, at least for now, uh, you know, on all the socials like Twitter and Facebook. It's at Steve Dace Show on Twitter. You can look for me on Facebook uh, and, and places that don't have nearly the kind of uh, uh, censorship like MeWe and, uh, and Trump's Truth Social and places like that. Um, and if you want to uh, become uh, a subscriber of our show on Blaze TV, uh, blazetv.com slash dace is where you can go to do that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to being with us today. And uh, your advice is uh, it, it's going to bless a lot of people I know. And I just want you to know I'm thankful for you. And I don't know how it is such an American thing. I, I, someone's going to have to teach me how Americans who are involved with the politics across the country keep all of the stats of different regions (laughs) and different locations. So uh, up front in their mind, I I feel like whenever I'm talking to an American, you know, right now we're visiting Kentucky and, and, you know, I'll say to somebody, Hey, how long have you been in this area? And they'll say, Oh, I just moved into Lexington, you know, 15 years ago. And they're like, Hey, where'd you move from? Well, I moved from, and it was like, 15 minutes down the road from Lexington. And and as a Canadian, I just assume, well, that's what I meant by the area. Americans have such a brilliant way of remembering and thinking locally. I don't know how you do it, but I just want to give you that compliment. Thank you for sharing all all those experiences with us. And I appreciate it. Very kind. And I enjoyed it. Thank you. And I can't believe you like horror movies. That's, that's a really strange, crazy thing for someone to say. I, that, that would be, I'd love to sit down. I've literally counseled a young woman in the opposite direction, uh, staying away from horror movies. So maybe one day. Well, I would not counsel everybody to do it for sure, right? Like, like, I'm not the guy that, you know, there's a church in Vegas that caters to people who want to leave the porn industry. Right. Yeah. That, that's not, that's probably not something I should probably get involved in that level of ministry. Right. Okay. Yeah. If so if you have issues with the occult and things of that nature and dark thoughts, I mean, yeah. You know, if you're a former alcoholic, you might not want to go to the sports bar to meet your accountability buddies, right? right? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 No, I was more 
it, it's a good point, but I was just more messing around in the fact that I want to dig more into your theology of horror movies. Anyways, look, it's been great having you. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, everybody, uh, specifically, if you're getting involved in uh, vetting candidates or you're getting involved with candidates, share this video around because some of the wisdom Steve shared is so important. Thanks for listening, everybody. Godspeed. <laughs>